0: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2 in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Ural Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Our first show for 2023 was a look at AI. Back in March, the abilities of GPT-3 were reverberating around the world, and during that time we asked what this meant for the future of journalism and the news. Fast forward four months later and a lot has happened since. In short, GPT-4 and Google's Palm have shown not only are the abilities of AI moving ahead, but more concerningly that they are accelerating. Some estimates now have AI equal or better than the average human at all language tasks. That's all tasks. It's probably fair to say our emotional response to AI over the last few months has moved from alarm to excitement to despondency and then back to alarm. Last week, in the US, the stock market fell, reportedly due to an AI-altered photo of an explosion outside the Pentagon. Are we ready for a flood of fake news? And what happens when the fakes are as real and believable as the actual news? To discuss this and more, we are lucky to have Dr. Sasha Malatoris, who's a senior lecturer at UTS and in a previous life was a feature writer for the Sydney Morning Herald. And Charlie Lewis is the Tips and Murmur editor at Quarky. He also presents Spin Cycle on Triple R in Melbourne. Dr. Sasha Malatoris and Charlie Lewis, welcome back to Forth State. Hey, thank you for having us, Anthony. <laughs> One of the cliches of radio is ending a show saying, we'll have to get you both back to talk about this again. Well, for once, it's actually happening. our first show of the year, I spoke with both of you about AI. Now, a lot has happened in the last four months. I started the first show asking you both if we were on the cusp of a revolution. And at the time, both of you were a little bit unsure, but noted it was clearly something that had that potential. Four months on, is this the start of a revolution?
1: Oh, gee. I don't know if I feel any different, to be honest, from four months ago. It, clearly, it has the potential to be transformative in a whole lot of ways. There are many potential benefits, and there are serious, freaking enormous risks as well. You know, when we had this week, I'm sure you'll get to this later, but this week, some of the AI leaders coming out and saying there is a possibility of a risk of extinction coming out of all this technology that, that, we're developing, and the speed with which it's developing. So, yeah, there are there are serious risks, and I have some very specific and strong views about how we need to respond to those risks. But I'll, I'll let Charlie have his response first.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, certainly the pace, in a way, we should have we should have known that the 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 months following our chat would 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 sort of have such a strong and quick uh, sort of advances. And I think also part of the, I mean, I think part of the irony of this is that the reason that the journalists are writing about it so much is that it's more and more likely that part of this is going to be costing them their jobs. So I think that's part of the reason why the the existential sense of everything is kind of being, is being fed into the coverage. I see obviously this morning that the, the, the government has has sort of announced plans to attempt to uh, regulate this in some ways, which so I think, you know, we probably all agree is is necessary on one level or another. It's, it's interesting. I think one of the, one of the, the points... That I thought was interesting uh, in relation to that that letter that, that Sasha referenced before the the fact that it should be sort of thought of as a a, a potential extinction category level event uh, is that there's a bit of there's a, a, a sort of school of thought that I've seen from some experts in this area that feel that that's almost a little bit of sleight of hand is that by by calling attention to the fact that uh, or, or by, by 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 yes calling to mind uh, a, a, a far off and at the moment hypothetical world in which we are, we are Terminator-style slaves uh, to the machines does actually stop people. That takes the headline, and people talk less and less about the fact that AI, in other ways, has been woven into our day-to-day life quite, quite a lot, particularly in the, in the area of, of, say, surveillance. And a lot of the issues in terms of the confirmed bias of the data sets and things like that are already well, uh, well entrained. So I, was, I actually was happy to see in the report that the government cited that there was talk about one of the issues being that there are these uh, inbuilt biases in, built into a lot of the ways that the AI kind of works. And it'll be interesting to see what, what, is, what can be done to, to regulate that, I suppose.
0: Look, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's jump into the the call that that's gone out from a number of leading figures in AI field to basically put a pause on the development of these models. It strikes me that you know this this call to pause uh, this development. It's already too late. These things are already out of the box. Sasha, how do you feel about these calls to a pause? And and and, and do you actually feel that it's it's actually sincere?
1: Yeah, uh, look. I just see that there are the enormous potential risks. So how do we respond to that? Do we say, look, ah, oh, people are going to innovate, companies are going to innovate and it's going to happen anyway? I, I frankly I don't think that's good enough. You know, and when people have come out now and said, you know what, we should have had more guardrails around social media, some of the harms that have been caused and still continue to be caused are really serious and ongoing, you know, from misinformation to teen mental health to what have you. I'm just a a big believer in, yeah, okay, it might be hard to work out how to regulate this. It might even be impossible to enforce regulation perfectly or even really well, but we've still got to try. And I think, you know, the risks are so great that there are certain basic regulatory moves that we should make and need to make, you know. And and Charlie mentioned uh, that the Australian government's made an announcement in this space over the last day. And I, I I think that's really good. We need to get into having some guardrails as AI is as the AI developers are themselves admitting.
0: Yes, and look, let, let's talk about why we need these guardrails. I mean, one of the things that has been alarming me more and more when I look into AI, I've been following a few blogs, and one of the things that keeps popping up time and time again uh, in the in the case of GPT four is that it has abilities outside of what it was designed to do. So, for instance, uh, GPT-4 uh, can can write music. It was never trained on music. Uh, as of last week, GPT-4 has been made to play Minecraft autonomously. This is a language model interacting in a 3D universe. So I, I, it does feel like it's time to also drop this idea that these large language models are just predictive text and, that, and to some extent we can just ignore them. It also seems that to me that the genie is out of the bottle. GPT already has a hundred million users. It's reached that level uh, in in a time frame that took Facebook two years. So it does seem that we are dealing with something completely new and something that is outside of what we even were told what it was four months ago when we were told that this was just basically uh, a thing that arranged words by statistics. Do you both feel that we're now in this space where, we're talking about a technology that is actually something new and so new that we probably should be pausing and, and taking a moment to actually know what we're actually dealing with.
2: Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any there's, I don't think there's any doubt that that is the case. And of course, with, with issues such as AI, you get into slightly head-spinning territory when you start to get to the section of, well, once you create something that is as intelligent or more intelligent than a human, what is that then capable of creating bits more intelligent than it is and that's when you get into the kind of doomsday scenarios that we've been we've been discussing i mean and and there's there's so much even just from a pure practical non-philosophical level there is now so much of research piling up in the us and elsewhere that, that sort of indicates uh, how many jobs can actually be sort of wiped out in a stroke by by technology of this sort? I saw a, a an employee employer consultancy actually quite quite breezily and happily announcing that they believe that by the end of this decade, uh, large language models will be able to you know write final drafts better than a professional writer would and uh, create code better than a full time developer would, and and that starts to get a bit mind boggling when you think about it in those terms. I, I heard there's an, an academic.
1: Uh, incorporated a lot of chat GPT into his course and had students sort of reflect on it and have had students generate work using that technology and they had some really interesting reflections and one of the students said look I'm not really that worried yet that the AI is going to match human intelligence I'm more worried that we're going to regress to AI's (laughs) derivative generative type of approach you know because we we have to keep reminding ourselves that that what is going on with with ChatGPT and and all the other generative AI is that it just keeps scraping the content that's already out there and then mashing it up in a new form. There is nothing fundamentally new. It's just a new kind of blend of what is already out there. So in in some ways, it's a, it's not such a step forward at this point. It's kind of it's locking us into a particular point in time when the internet is. At the point that it's at and that's what's being scraped in mined. so it's, it's at this point hopefully doomsday scenarios are still <laughs> a long way off if they're here at all but yeah this is the point now when it, when it is getting pretty critical and we need to take these have these thoughts about what we're going to do and so the specific measures two of them that i argue for and this is something i've written a short piece in tomorrow's uh that's friday june 2 Center for Media Transition newsletter, which you can access through the website cmt.uts.edu.au. This is uh, this is the moment where we where we regulate in a couple of specific ways. One is, I think we just need to switch the whole mindset of the law from a caveat emptor approach to a caveat venditor approach. Right? Instead of buyer beware, we're thinking more seller beware. We just need to put the responsibility fundamentally on the companies who are letting loose this technology into the world. So, you know, you can't be a company such as OpenAI and say, look, we've got this massive technology. We're going to release it on the world and let's see what happens. Well, fine, but then you wear the consequences. If this misinformation leads to violence, if uh, it leads to horrible violence on a large scale, there is defamation. You know, we, we saw a story about a local politician down in Victoria who found out there was defamatory content that GPT was generating about the fact that he'd been in prison. He hadn't been in prison. This sort of stuff is is really harmful, right, and the company needs to wear it. So that, that that's my first suggestion. We shift to a, a seller beware and put the onus and the responsibility on the companies. The second thing I think is that the law doesn't need to get all the minutiae in place. Rather, let's have general protections, right? Already the Australian consumer law protects against misleading and deceptive conduct. That's something that's actually worked really well in protecting privacy in a few instances. Google was hit with a $60 million fine for being misleading with its location data collection and not telling users exactly what was going on. Um, So I think these sorts of general provisions like against misleading and deceptive conduct, against coercion, for fairness which is something that is being considered by the ACCC and and the government, for robust consent being mandatory, for a certain degree of transparency. I think we make these general provisions that the courts can then interpret, and they they can potentially be really powerful.
0: That's some very interesting points there. Uh, And look, it does feed into uh, a point that was made by uh, Boxer's Kesley Piper, who, who pointed out that AI is moving so quickly. It's not that humans won't be able to adapt. It's that it's the rate that it's moving is, is going to stop humans from adapting. Uh, we saw that with the internet. We saw that, and we saw that with social media, where things change very quickly in a space of a few years, and our legislative framework was unable or unwilling to keep up. That model that you were just talking about it does completely turn the the web idea on its head because. The companies aren't responsible. We know that we know that social media companies aren't responsible for the content that they actually publish, though they'll deny they published it. What 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 do you think of the the chances? Though it does take a complete mindset change here, and 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 does sound like one that we do need. But
1: yeah, you're totally right. You're totally right. It's a complete switch in mindset. So in the US, most famously, we have Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act which is about 25 years old, and basically gives digital platforms immunity for what the content that appears on their sites. Now, even Facebook has admitted, and other digital platforms have admitted, we need to revisit that. And that doesn't, it's, it goes too far. So I think we have a moment where AI companies, uh, digital platforms more widely recognize that regulation is needed. You know, Mark Zuckerberg has come out since Cambridge Analytica in 2018 and said, look, we do need regulations." About privacy, about misinformation, about harmful content, and so on. So there is a moment where we recognise there are major risks where even the companies are saying, yeah, we do need regulation. And sure, that part of that might be disingenuous or there might be ulterior motives that ultimately it might help their bottom line in some way. But I think yeah, this is a time when we need to step in and do something.
0: Look, you both mentioned uh, the uh, the announcement that uh, came out of the federal government about uh, a discussion paper. Mm-hmm. And with that, there's, you know, it'd be a call for uh, submissions and, and maybe that we're moving towards having a white paper on AI. So look, there, there may be some guardrails. We, you know, there's even a call for a dedicated minister for the digital economy. All these things to me sound quite logical, but Australia doing those things in isolation is not really going to change anything, is it? So uh, 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 Europe may move on this, but fundamentally all this comes back to America There doesn't seem to be any appetite to to regulate and to restrict the AI industry. Do you see see it differently or or, or see a different path forward?
2: Well, I mean, I suppose in a way it does come down to a little bit of a moral argument about about kind of culpability and controlling what you can. I mean, that's been the the, the longest running uh, argument in this country against any kind of action on climate change from from government is always but we 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 emit so little if china and india don't do it then who who cares nothing we can really do make a difference but it's sort of like well ultimately you can't let that be the guiding you can't let that guide you decision just making about whether something ought to be uh regulated or not i mean and also it's funny we were talking before about about you know this is a real chance to to uh yeah regulate something that needs regulation at, at a decent time it sort of reminded me a little bit and I think you know if we can critique the media a little bit of the gig economy era when every new app that came along that could sort of yeah uh, you know, task grab it or whatever you would it would be reported in this real like gee whiz thigh slapping and this is so interesting you know what an innovation way by by the media and the fact that this was eroding uh, well over a hundred years worth of employment law in this country. Didn't seem to get noticed until about five years after all these things had been bedded in. So I, I think, yeah, I think going back to your original question, I think ultimately, I, I think you're correct. I think the, the 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 real issues are in bigger markets, but that that, that shouldn't that shouldn't stop the government from trying to try, trying to uh, intervene. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Charlie. I think we just have to take
1: responsibility for what we can in Australia and try to create the best regulatory framework and. Look, I'm, I'm not someone who, who sort of traditionally argues for more laws, more regulation. So as I said before, I think, you know, some of these general principles can be really powerful, right? We need to kind of rethink this from a first principles perspective uh, and, and you know, against misleading and deceptive conduct, which is already enshrined in law, for fairness, for a degree of transparency. These sorts of things are what can make a difference and the principles can then be applied as the technology changes and evolves and looking around the world we won't be alone you know the ai act is proposed in europe which uh, you mentioned earlier you know it, it will have some significant powers and it follows on from other innovations in europe the gdpr very famously uh, which protects privacy and then last year the digital services act came into place as well and it has these quite sweeping powers with regards to misinformation and and letting users have more control over how algorithms affect them, which is really interesting too. So Europe is definitely moving in this direction. We will follow suit. We're currently reviewing our privacy laws as well, which is something that's connected. And the US, I mean, even the US, yes, they won't move as far as Europe. We know that. But, you know, Biden and Harris, their administration came out with an announcement a couple of weeks ago now, it's taking new steps to advance responsible artificial intelligence research, development, and deployment. You know, so hopefully the US will will move in this direction as well.
0: And look, there is a history of this actually happening. Traditional media is reasonably tightly regulated, and uh, you know, uh, so governments around the world have shown that they can do this. Uh, but it's fair to say with the internet and social media that it was abject failure across the board. Do you both feel that the, the lessons of the last 20 years have been learned, uh, at least in Australia and, and Europe, Sasha?
1: Uh, look, that's a, that's a good question. And, and of course, what we're really interested in, I guess, in this conversation is how this all ties into journalism, right? So the regulation of journalism is a really thorny, tricky issue too. In the US, it's largely unregulated. You know, that we don't in the US, there aren't really the equivalent of the Australian Press Council or you know, the Australian Communications and Media Authority. In Australia, meanwhile, we do have quite a lot of regulation, but it's really messy and it's really inconsistent. And, you know, I've published a few things with Derek Wilding about that and about how reform is needed there. We need a more streamlined, coherent system of news oversight. Yeah. And that should incorporate how Journalism works with AI and uses AI, and what the kind of parameters there should be. So, like, we need a lot of we need a lot of work in that space too, and that, that's really relevant to this whole larger conversation.
0: Let's move on, and uh, we'll come back to some of these larger issues uh, later in the discussion. But let, let's move on to disinformation. A little over a week ago, uh, a reportedly AI-generated photo of an explosion outside the Pentagon sent the stock market falling. Uh, it was retweeted all over the place. You know fake news and disinformation is not anything new, but with the promises of AI, it does seem we're on the cusp of a, an explosion of fake news and disinformation and and Sasha, here's the Dorothy Dixer. are we ready for what's coming?
1: <laughs> of course not. We're never ready. Oh, I don't really I, I guess I go back to my earlier point about responsibility So mm. you know the the platforms that are enabling misinformation to spread. Uh, and in some cases, say AI, where they're in fact creating misinformation, they're genera- the technology is generating it and then spreading it that way. Those platforms need to bear that responsibility for, for what follows from that misinformation. And I just think in a lot of cases, it's not good enough to put technology out into the world that generates lies you know, that, that's kind of a fundamental problem I have, right? So the kind of the ethical school of thought that I come from is really informed by a Kantian style of thinking about respect and dignity and autonomy. And generally, lying is wrong, right? You don't lie to someone because to do so messes with their autonomy. It messes with their ability to be proper self-determining agents, right? So lies are really harmful. They're fundamentally Ethically wrong. And yes, there are exceptions. Sometimes lies are ethically acceptable. You know, if you're lying to directly save a life or, you know, certain occasions you can you can justify a lie, but generally they're wrong. And to put out a machine, say generative AI, that generates content in a way where lies are mixed in with truth in a way that you can't really tell the two apart. You know, according to ChatGPC, I've written a couple of books that I I know, unless my memory is really bad, that I haven't written <laughs> right. So that that sort of stuff is really problematic. And I think from those sort of basic principles, it's like, come on, you need to do better. You can't just put a product into the world that generates lies mixed in with with truth.
2: It does seem to me the more that I think about this, and the more people I talk to about it, that, and again, you, you there's the, the old concept of unknown unknowns. But as far as I can see, it, it's just this is the the supercharging and the acceleration. Of kind of moral and philosophical and and societal maladies that we currently are are seeing so the kind of increased so i mean for example the amount of you know fake news that has been promulgated on facebook and twitter and elsewhere in the last eight years probably longer now is 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 huge and and it potentially has affected you know hugely affected big elections and things like that so it's not like we haven't already got misinformation that is very convincing to its intended audience already out there already causing a lot of issues as you say when it becomes the more uncanny it becomes the more the more lifelike and realistic that, that say fake photography i mean i mean people are still very anyone with, with a decent eye for these things is still pretty good at being able to pick up that a, a shot like the pentagon one had been had been doctored it wasn't it wasn't actually all that convincing on close inspection but we are going to get to a point at some stage when it will one hundred. It will, it will be able to seamlessly recreate these these scenes, and ultimately, I, I don't know. I think that just that, that for me is just an acceleration of what we've already kind of seen. There'll be uh, greater siloing, greater kind of atomization of views, and there will be people who will believe that that you could demonstrate that it's a fake too, and it will never change their view. And I, I feel like, yeah, that that kind of divide between people. Uh, who yeah who are taken in by these kinds of things will just kind of get deeper if not if not wider.
0: But see look one of the aspects both you've been talking about is the amount and the quality of, of fake news and disinformation is going to increase. But one of the things that I, I heard and it needs to be verified this is going to happen but that the disinformation and the fake news will be soon being able to be generated in real time. So you could be watching a press conference and you think you're watching the actual feed of the press conference and you're not, and uh, it's indistinguishable from the actual press conference minus what's being said. That's the level of disinformation that's coming, which fundamentally goes to the core of uh, the nature of of just traditional journalism and fact-checking, and those kinds of things we're, we're completely unprepared for, and we haven't even experienced. We don't have any defenses.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a terrifying prospect, real-time misinformation. Yeah, you know, and, and again, we just need to uh, try to do what we can to prevent that happening. Look, if I put on my optimist hat, I can say maybe this is good for journalism, you know, for, for proper journalism. That it journalism needs to reflect on its standards too, right? So yep. we, we know that there are terrible trust levels in journalism, you know, in Australia fewer than... Less than half the population trusts news media, and that's sad, and it's it's terrible, and it's really bad for our democracy and our society and, and our common public life. So let's hope that somewhere through this, there is a reevaluation of journalism standards as well. Perhaps people will recognise that okay. The Sydney Morning Herald, you know, and my bias here is that's where I used to work, so I'll probably see the Sydney Morning Herald slightly through rose-tinted glasses, even though I can acknowledge all its faults. It does do decent journalism. You have some people there like Kate McClellan you know, Nick McKenzie who are really good at their jobs and do really forensic uh, public interest journalism. So maybe, you know, and this is being very optimistic, but maybe we'll see a bit more attention based on uh, what are the journalistic values that really matter to us, how are they best uh, carried out by journalists, and can we therefore kind of get back behind this and, and support good journalism again?
2: I, 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 completely, I completely agree with the session, and that's all. I'll probably just amplify that, that I think that when you have a situation of, Real-time misinformation, and by the way, I feel like real-time mis- misinformation could be applied to certain political figures just speaking normally. But um, <laughs> it, it it just goes back it just goes back to the, the yeah the kind of the toolbox of journalism in the first place, which is you know
0: skepticism,
2: verification, fact-checking, making sure that what you report to your readers or your viewers is actually what has occurred.
0: Yes, and look, it does it does feel that that way that the media could have a, a stronger role. So you know the Pentagon. Uh, didn't actually explode because it wasn't on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, So there could be that aspect, but I also see this kind of factoring and you mentioned silos before where, you know, there's people like the three of us who are, who are uh, consuming a lot of media, but also, but, but also checking our media, getting our media from multiple sources, making sure that the facts that we're getting are true facts. And then there's people who are living in a social media bubble who are seeing all kinds of things, and so you, you end up having having two parallel universes, which uh, you know that's that's also the issue, which we, we which we have been dealing with. It's not a new problem. But it could get turbocharged, as we've mentioned. So look, I do remember back in March when we were talking about all of this, I put the question to you whether the job of being a journalist was safe. And I do remember both of you pushing back and saying that the role of being a journalist was an important one, but also one that a language model like GPT couldn't easily replace. You know, GPT can't go to a courtroom, it can't go to a press conference, can't knock on a door and ask an uncomfortable question. So and I'm, I'm guessing you both still feel that way. But one of the points that's been made, and it's, a, 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 I, think, I think, a pretty hard point to push back against, any job that uh, can take place at home uh, can be replaced by AI. And because of the pandemic, we kind of know what those jobs are. In the case of Australia, at one point, about 40% of all work was happening at home. Uh, Charlie, you've been thinking about the, the nature of, of the world to come. Forty percent of work potentially on the chopping block. It's not a a rosy picture, is it?
2: No, 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 it's not. And I think that I mean that that's something that I've been giving more and more thought to recently, as uh, as more and more information about AI has been coming out. Is kind of what the uh, social and societal uh, implications of that are, and and you sort of you can only really look. I've been trying to look to history for for indications of that about uh, yeah things like, for example, the uh, the industrial revolution, which you know wiped out. Whole ways of life for, for people in, in, the, in, say, peripheral areas who are all stuck towards cities where the jobs now were and old ways of working and old ways of being in the world, of being part of a community, part of a family were kind of wiped out. And it's it's interesting. I was talking to uh, Greg Patmore, who's, a, who's an industrial historian, and he was sort of saying that what you find invariably when it comes to work at least, when there are these huge technological technological sort of leaps forward that replace whole ways of being, that there are the breaking of bonds of family and community and things like that, you'll see new forms of resistance Inevitably, crop up uh, in response to that. So, uh, for example, if you look at the Industrial Revolution, that's a huge milestone in terms of the idea of a trade union and, and the the ideas that sort of inform that and the way that they are organised often are, were sort of strengthened in that period. And the same with things like uh, consumer collectives. So, so people looking to 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 protect consumer rights as well. They both kind of cropped up in response to this huge historical and technological change. So, I mean, you're seeing things like I mean, uh, Sasha referenced it before about the idea of having. Great greater control over personally how algorithms, say, uh, target you. There's also things on data co-ops that are kind of cropping up around the world. So people who are treating their personal data the way that an industrial group would have have treated their labor during the Industrial Revolution as things that they can collectivize and and possibly bargain with. I, I, I think it's I'm a bit of a, a scenic uh, journey to your answer, but I think you know it's, it's obviously a, a terrifying view. But it, w- it will be very interesting to see just beyond in terms of people's jobs being wiped out. We, we, we've seen that with the rise of automation in, in many industries, but it's sort of what does that leave behind and how do people organise themselves and do they organise themselves in response to that?
0: For most economists, there's the general feeling that when there's a technological change and people are put out of work, more jobs are created. But if we're talking about forty percent of all work, or something in the order of that figure, it's hard to see that there's going to be a whole lot of new jobs that replace that, even if we are, even if we are suddenly all more productive. Sasha, do you do you share that kind of pessimism, or do you do you feel that given time, given time, but th- that society will be able to restructure itself? Mm. Uh, I know look, it's a huge I, question.
1: It's, it's such a big question, isn't it? But uh, uh, look let me put my optimist hat on you know i've just put it up taken it off but i'll put it on again 40% okay by my calculations that means we each work a 3 day week what do you reckon i think that could work
0: I, i'm up for that
1: <laughs> i'm up for that look i i don't know that's just that's too big but this is kind of related that's definitely related to our larger discussion but newsguard uh you i'm sure you've both heard of and and <laughs> listeners might have heard of it's an organisation from the US that recently arrived in australia and that gives news outlets, it sort of checks them and it gives them a credibility rating. But one thing it started doing is looking around to, at the world to try to see what has sprung up that is AI-generated journalism. And uh, just their press release from uh, late May, so like two weeks ago, the 19th, it says NewsGuard now identifies 125 news and information websites generated by AI Um, And it's also then developed a framework for defining unreliable AI generated news and info sources. So there are already, you know, at least 125, I'm sure there are more sites that just generate all their content using only AI, which is not surprising, but it's worrying because obviously this is a way to make a few bucks.
2: It's actually interesting. If you, if you, uh, I'm sure this is this will be much true of people who write for bigger places than Cranky. But if we, if we are to look for our own articles online, you know, say you're trying to find something that you wrote a while back to inform it, invariably you will find three or four copies of it that have been sort of possibly. It's, it's not entirely clear if it's AI, but it could well be put through AI, maybe have a few words changed and then put out from behind the paywall on various kind of wild lines. So it's already sort of happening in in that way. It's interesting. I didn't realize that there was quite that many that were just entirely generated out of thin air. I just wanted to make one more point on on the jobs uh, point, because I think, as you say, we, we've been we've been at the state of a society where we could be we could be working three days a week for a very long time. And somehow that never seemed to happen. They just came up with new kinds of jobs to keep us busy. But also, yes, it's not just, I suppose, the 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 number of jobs. And I, I think that I, think, I, believe, I believe it was Forbes that kind of calculated that it will cost something like 85 million jobs, but it will create something like 69 69 million. So there'll be this very big shortfall in terms of the balance in that way. But it's not just also about the number of jobs. It's about the quality of those Mm. jobs and and, and jobs that give people meaning in their life and and are are attuned to what they've kind of been trained and and take some pride in doing.
0: I've already heard the term uh, prompt engineer. and. Uh, I don't know that I want that future for my kids. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but the prompt engineer, <laughs> I, look, it's a job, and so maybe maybe I shouldn't be so uh, so down on it, but it, it doesn't really sound like a great future.
1: No, <laughs> I, I saw that too. I can't remember what the publication was, but I also thought surely that's not a full-time job.
0: <laughs> surely.
2: <laughs> I think we also should probably, we've been, we have been a bit gloomy, but the, 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 there are like obviously very positive applications that, Artificial intelligence can have within uh, traditional journalism in terms of you know particularly data mining and things like that. It can make those processes a lot more efficient and quick. So we we, we can't just talk about the becoming jobs of public slash actual.
0: Public. Uh, and look, that that was in the f- our first chat back uh, back in March. The, the, we kind of ended on the the idea that the that it's just a tool and it's a useful tool if used responsibly. It's pretty clear from this discussion that we're all feeling that something bad has got out of Pandora's box and is it too late to put it back in? It probably is, but we're thinking of how we could deal with this. But let's see if we can end on a positive note. I mean, Mm. where where do you see AI maybe five years from now and how it's benefiting the practice of journalism, but but also benefiting society?
1: I think we're not in a great state
0: at the moment when
1: when I look at news media and uh, and journalism, right? There are some good outlets, but trust levels are really low. We have statistics about a large minority of people who are turning away from the news. They feel like the news doesn't cover issues they care about, that the coverage is too negative. There are all sorts of issues for this. That's a real problem, right? I think what we want to have is a public sphere where there is a selection of quality journalism, quality public interest journalism. And I'm not just saying this because Charlie's here, but I think Crikey does a good job of that. And there are lots of other publications in Australia that do a good job of that. The ABC does a great job of that. as the most trusted news source in Australia for a reason, right? It's, it's excellent most of the time, and it too makes mistakes. So we, we do have some good news media. There is a challenge. The challenge is coming both from some bad journalism that's out there. There's a lot of shit journalism. It's also coming from AI. So if I look forward five years and I I try to imagine a positive scenario, what do we want? Yeah, we want a scenario where sure AI is being used as a tool, including for the the purposes that Charlie mentions of helping data journalism. But what I would hope to see is that somehow AI has been part of the, the, the spark that has helped journalism to better itself so that we see more quality journalism, more public interest journalism, and somehow in the process of working our way through how we live with AI and get the best out of this tool, we also work out a way to oversee journalism in a more effective way. And, and I don't mean that in a kind of really top-down, heavy, heavily regulated way, but just in a way where journalism has standards that it adheres to and complaints mechanisms are more straightforward and streamlined and so that's what I would hope to see that AI ha- has been this really confronting challenge but over the next five years it's it's improved the public sphere and led to a situation where we have better journalism
2: I, I could only really uh, yeah echo what Sasha says I mean I think there is an element to which for all the the philosophical questions that it raises, and all the the kind of futures that you can envisage with AI, AI like most technologies is not in and of itself malign or malicious, and that any good or bad it is doing, it's only to an extent down to the health of the system that it that it forms a part of. So, the, I suppose that's the thing. That yes, as, as as she says, the 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 optimistic version of what we see AI doing. Isn't necessarily specifically down to AI. It's it's maybe part of a systemic kind of reevaluation of the of the of the journalism landscape and and how it's working, uh, and and that yeah that it's a healthy and useful part of that that is obviously yeah sensibly regulated and not being put to kind of specifically malign uses or out of control as we've talked about.
0: We'll look on that note, Dr. Sasha Melotaurus and Charlie Lewis. Thanks for being on Fourth Estate.
2: Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks so much,
0: guys. Really enjoyed it. I'd like to thank Dr. Sasha Melatoris and Charlie Lewis for being on Forfe for State, and thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of Turo CR and heard across the country on the community radio network. Forfe for State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Forfe for State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media politics and a lot in between. We'll be back next week for more, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4 I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening.